0: We're going to start a three-week little mini-series heading into Easter on the resurrection. And then after Easter, we are going to dive into the book of James. The good news is James only has five chapters. Deuteronomy had 34. So at that rate, uh, seventh shorter. So it was only like three messages probably. No, we'll be in James for a little while, but five chapters. So I, I wanted to spend a few. I didn't want to just relegate Easter and the resurrection to one Sunday. There's a lot there, and I want to build our faith, and I want to encourage us not only to build our faith in the resurrection, but the implications of the resurrection. And so for the next three weeks, uh, we want to talk about the resurrection, the fact that we serve a risen Savior, and that is indeed wonderful news, and I think it's worthy of our, uh, worthy of our attention. And, and John, you're in Second Corinthians 5. Flip over quickly Uh, just for a moment, to John 11, 25 and 26, because Jesus makes a statement there that I want to try to unpack. I want to help us understand how he could make the statement that he makes in uh, John 11. And here's what I want to accomplish culminating with Easter. If you said, what do you want to accomplish, Chris, with these three sermons? Here's how I would answer it. I want us to learn and to grow in the way that we will be Easter Christians in a Good Friday world. Think about that. I want us to be Easter Christians in a Good Friday world. We we live in a world, here's what I mean by that. We, We live in a world full of despair and worry, anxiety, depression, hurt, death. It's all around us. Everywhere we turn, it's all around us. That's the world we live in. And yet at Christians, as we'll see today, we we don't look at the things that are seen. We look at the things that are unseen. And Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross, was buried, and three days later came out of that tomb by the power of God, signifying again Romans 1, 4, 3 and 4. This is His Son. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It's not a non-negotiable. To to deny the resurrection is to deny your faith. It's not just, hey, I believe that Jesus died, because that's reasonable, but this this resurrection stuff, it's one and the same. Jesus was resurrected. And and if if all it was was a death, that's the world we live in. And yet there's a resurrected Savior who says, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We have a resurrected Savior who stared death in the face and conquered it and then has offered that to us. Uh, Many of you in this room have have loved ones who have gone on before you and were believers and they're in heaven. You know firsthand what I'm talking about here, about loosening your grip on this world. This is not our home. Not meant to be our home. We were made for something far superior, far better. And, and in the face of all the despair and worry and anxiety and death that, that this world faces, that, that was experienced on that Friday when our Savior was resurrected, guess what? I mean, was crucified three days later, He was resurrected. And you know what? The despair and the anxiety and the worry and the death was replaced with? It was replaced with life. It was replaced with hope. It was replaced with courage. There's no no room for despair. We see a group of disciples who went from huddled up in this tiny room, their Savior was dead, and they're huddled up, and they're wondering, what have we done to to the resurrected Jesus appearing for them? and, And they were so bold and courageous because of that truth. All but one of them ended up dying a martyr's death. How do you go from being huddled up in this room, afraid to walk out, to speaking so boldly to the point where you'll give up your life? A resurrected Savior does that. The reality of, I cannot die, does that. The reality of, no matter what this world does to me, it can't take away from me what Jesus Christ, by faith, has given me and through grace has given me. And in the face of adversity, you see some disciples and and you see it even today. I've seen, you've probably seen it too, videos of these Christians who are being murdered because of their faith. They're not running around wailing. They're not screaming. They're not going crazy. They're standing there willing to die for their savior. They're standing there willing. I will not recant. Why? Because I have confidence that Jesus Christ is going to give me back my life even if I lose it for the gospel. Even if they lose it, they're saying, look, Christ is going to give it back to me. You can't. That's the beauty of the resurrection. You can't take away what Christ has offered. You can't take it away. And even in the even in the face of dying, I've, I've put myself in that. If somebody walked through those doors right now and said, recant or die, Chris, what would you do? I know what I hope I would do. I know what I hope I do. But how do you get there? How do you, how do you get to that point? How do you how do you get to the point where the disciples were willing to to give up their life and not recant? How do you get there to the point where you're willing to say, "Look, no matter what, I'm not turning back," because you can't take anything from me. And I think the answer is what Jesus says in John eleven twenty five and twenty six. And it's crazy. It will. I admit on the front end, it's going to sound crazy on the front end, but I want to back it up with scripture. I want to teach us what he's saying. But look. Look at verses 25 and 26. John 11, the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. Jesus knew Lazarus was dead. He waited. He could have gotten there earlier. He waited. It's been four days. Mary and Martha have both already made it known to him. Look, if you'd have been there, if you'd have been there, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus talks about the resurrection, and Mary says, you know what? Or Martha says, you know I get the resurrection. Hey, at the end of time, I get it, there'll be a resurrection. Jesus says, "Nope." I'm going to correct your thinking. Correct your thinking a little bit here. Look at verse 25. He says, "Jesus." Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And that's what Jesus responds to. He says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then here's the question all of us have to answer. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the crux of the issue. Do you believe this? Because on the surface, we, we see people die all the time. This world is full of death. So, so what's going on there? What, what does he mean there? And, and I ask the same question that Jesus asked Mary and Martha. I ask to us, I ask to myself, do we believe this? Do we believe that because of Jesus Christ and our profession of faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, do we really believe because of that we cannot die? We will not die do we believe that? And if we do believe that, if we really believe that, what ought our response to believing that be? And I'm here to challenge us this morning, it ought to be confidence. It ought to be confidence in the face of death. It ought to be even eagerness in the face of death, a longing rather to be with our Savior. Yet, while we are here, I, I, we'll go to Philippians 1. Paul says, hey, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want to die to go to my Savior, but if, as long as you let me live, what he say? He said, it'll be fruitful ministry. He says, if I, if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's Christ. Literally in the Greek, there, there's no, um, all those fill-ins in our English language, literally in the Greek it says, live Christ, die gain. Two options. There were two options for Paul. Live Christ was one. Second, die Christ The second. No, no, you can't take Christ from me. That's what he's saying. And he was confident. And I want to use, you're in 2 Corinthians 5, I want to use that to explain what Jesus was teaching us and what he's helping us to understand here and what we must believe and hopefully it will fuel our faith. Hopefully, it will help all of us in here who are believers to understand that we ought to face death confidently. If you're here today, and, and again, not, this is not a politically correct statement, but it's a truthful statement. If you're here today and are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot face death confidently. What awaits is hell and weeping and gnashing of teeth and torment for eternity. For eternity. And yet, Jesus Christ has offered an alternative through faith. You say, why does that? Because your sins are sins. Why did Jesus die? Because our sins. To pay the penalty for our sins. And in replace of death and hell and everlasting torment, He has replaced that with life and heaven and everlasting uh, paradise. Complete opposite exchange. And, and yet we, we will live by faith. It requires faith. I, I was reminded as I was studying Second Corinthians 5, you know, we read these words and, and we read them with food on the table and a shelter over our head. And, and, and I doubt anybody this week was probably uh, persecuted here to the point of death that they felt like because of their faith they were going to lose their life. I, I, I doubt that. Could be the case. That's why I'm trying to, each week, uh, this week is Syria. There are Christians all over the world who face that reality every single moment of every single day of their life. And, and Paul was one of those people, listen, listen to me just to get a flavor for what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. Let me read a couple of passages to help us understand where, what Paul's life was like. He says in 2 Corinthians 1.8, you can just write these down and look at them later. I'm just going to read them. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which comes to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would, listen, why? So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in the God who raises the dead. Why, why did God allow him to walk that road so he would not trust in his flesh, he would trust in his faith? In the God who raises the dead. Why did Paul live boldly and didn't care about what happened to him? Because he knew he served a God who raises the dead. Second Corinthians 4, 7-12. But we have this treasure in our earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Where did the power come from? Not from Paul. It came from his faith. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. To live as Christ. When people see me, why do you live that way, Paul? Because Christ. Why, why, why do you not back down? Because of Christ. He says, for we who live are constantly being delivered over death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. They were literally dying, Paul says, we were willing to die so that you can live in Christ. We will give up our lives so that you will believe in Christ. 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5. But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors in sleeplessness and hunger and purity of knowledge. He goes on, look at verse 9, he says, And as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. You know what Paul's saying? I've got an inheritance in heaven that you cannot touch. I've got treasures in heaven that the things of this world cannot take away, and I'm living for that. A huge one, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three 23-29. Just try to grasp what Paul's life must have been like. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23 are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I'm more so. If there, listen, if there's no resurrected Savior, Paul is saying, I'm an idiot for living the way I'm living. Fool for living this way. He says as much in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are men to be most pitied. He says, if you do not realize there's a risen Savior, my life seems insane. But there is. It's interesting, in in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that. Then he says in verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. So it makes all the sense in the world to live this way. He says in verse 23 of 2 Corinthians 11, I, more, I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashings. three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers of false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, Paul says, as if that wasn't enough, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Paul knew the reality every single day when he opened up his eyes, that he knew very real reality that could be his last day. Every single day. How, How did he deal with that? How did he face that? How could he deal with that every single day? Why didn't all of that cause Paul to back down? Why didn't all of that cause Paul to just chill out and coast and fly under the radar and say, you know what, I've got my salvation, I'm good, I'm just going to live up this life and then I'll be guaranteed heaven. Why? Because he knew he had a resurrected Savior that had promised him he turned rewards in heaven and he was living for those rewards and not earthly rewards. You see, not only did Paul not back down, the more that the hostility escalated, the more that the, the, more that the persecution grew, the bolder Paul became. He could have easily backed down. He's dragged before the very people that hold his life in his hand and he speaks against them. Why? Why? How could Paul be so confident in the face of death? How? How would he have conviction and courage to proclaim the very truth that was the reason that he was being persecuted? Because he knew he had a risen Savior. He knew that there was nothing that this world could take from him. He knew that the, that the reality is to lose his life was actually to gain his life in a way that he had never experienced before. And again, in, 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 in our culture, hear me, as I read this, it's, it, it's impossible, I feel like, for me to put myself in Paul's shoes. We don't understand how he would eagerly wait. Why? Because I have all this stuff. I have air conditioning and clean water and tons of food and some money and some nice clothes and cars and friends and I have all these things that the world provides. You know what those do to me? They make me love this world far more than my Savior. They make me long for the things of this world far more than the inheritance that waits on me. And I may not be alone. That's why Paul says, if anyone loves his father and mother more than me, he's not worthy to be called my disciple. He's not saying hate your mom and dad. He's saying don't fall in love with the things of this earth. You stay in love with me. Because you know what the things of this world do? They make me long for more of the things of this world and not for eternity. That's what they do to us. And see, Paul didn't have that struggle, struggle. As we've said, there was Paul had very, very little. Guess what? All of his affections were on heaven. You, you hear all the time people say, he's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. That is unbiblical. Unbiblical. The reality is, is Chris Basham is so earthly minded, he's no heavenly good. That's the real problem. I'm too earthly minded that I become not heavenly good. Why? Because all my affections and attentions and efforts are to the things of this world, to the things that are perishing. How would Paul get to a point where he saw death as a preferable alternative? Here's how. He knew unequivocally that he served a risen Savior and that he would live even though he died. That's That's what Jesus is saying. He believed that. He believed unequivocally. And and that's where I think the rubber meets the road for us. If if I'm honest, if you're honest, and we'll get to this, my wife, my children, my family, you guys, you're seen. I know you exist. And I love them a lot. I love you a lot. I love my wife. I love my kids. I enjoy being around them. Listen, I want to see... Bradley and Sarah Grace grow up and serve the Lord. If, Lord willing, get married, have grandkids. I I want to experience that. And see, it's the things that are seen that fight us from believing the things that are unseen. In my mind, I can't comprehend the greatness of what God has awaiting for us. Why? Because it's unseen. And the beauty of what God has offered us is that no matter how great and amazing and awesome things here on this earth are, Heaven is infinitely better. The reality is none of us when we get to heaven, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, that is the only way you get to heaven. Please hear me. None of us when we get to heaven will question Jesus. Can we go back? Can we go back? You know what we're going to say? Why did you leave me down there so long? It's that awesome. But our, but our faith will begin at that point to be sight. See, right now, my sight is sight and my faith is unseen. And that's difficult. I'm, I'm telling you, even as your pastor, that's difficult. But, but Paul, for Paul, it was not difficult. He, he had, his faith was his sight. And the reality of the things of the of the Christian gospel were, were clear to him. He lived for those. He knew what Jesus Christ offered. And, that, and that's, what, that's why we're in 2 Corinthians 5. That's what I want us to see here real quickly. And, and I want to give us three lessons, three things for us to pray through, to think through. I want us to walk away from here today and ask ourselves, do I really believe that? And if not, here's the response today. God, by your grace, help me to believe. To, to be like the, the individual in, in Mark, um, I'm going off the cuff here, this can be dangerous. Mark 9, yeah, Mark 9, 24. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Listen to this. Immediately, the boy's father, little boy who's, who's dying, dead, right there. Jesus has to help him. Jesus says, do you believe? Listen, listen to the honesty of what this guy says to Jesus. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That's a pretty honest statement. I think that's an honest statement that all of us could walk away from here today. Say, Jesus... I believe. By your grace, help my unbelief. I, I think if we were honest with each other, that would probably be the approach to any, any sermon I give, anytime we read the Bible. God, I want to believe that. Help me to believe that. There's any area in my life that I'm not believing that, by your grace, help me to believe that. Help me to live that with that. So as we listen through, as we as we look at these. Might that be our response. Lord, I believe by your grace help me help me in my unbelief. So how do we face death confidently? That's what I want to see today. How do we face death confidently? And it all goes back to the resurrection. Paul says in verses 1 through 4 of 2 Corinthians 5, here's the principle. We can face death confidently because the temporary is replaced by the permanent. How could Jesus say as a believer, you will not die. You will live. Jesus, What Jesus is saying is that death for a believer, the temporal, the temporary, the, the mortal, is replaced by the permanent and the immortal and the things which are not fading. L- literally what he says there, uh, he uses the word tent. H- have any of y'all ever tent camped? You tent camped? Yeah, we, I've tent camped. Listen to me. I love the way Paul talks about here groaning. In this house we groan. There's a lot of groaning when you tent camp. There's a lot of groaning throughout the night. There's groaning in preparing for it. Why did I commit to this? You know, you go to verses, let your yes be no and your no, yeah, yeah, that's what you want for tent camping. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You're like, all right, let me follow through. My son and daughter, they want to do this. They don't know. But guess what? You know why they look eager to tent camping? We know too much. I know too much about to enjoy tent camping. I know what it's going to be like sleeping on the floor. I know what it's going to be like with no air. I know what it's going to be like with a bunch of kids who don't want to go to sleep till 2 in the morning and then they want to get up at 5.45. Kids, they just, hey, it's faith. It's fun. And Paul is saying, you know what, The the the... This is our home. This is a temporary home. We get to exchange that which is temporary. That's why I hate tent camp, because it's not my home. I want walls and a roof and a mattress and water. I don't want to have to walk 200 yards in the dark with a flashlight to use the bathroom. No, I don't want to eat for a day and a half before I go tent camp, because I don't want to have to get up out of that tent when I lay down. It's, it's temporary. And Paul is saying, he says, verse 1 and 2, we know that this earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. Look at he says. We have a building from God. Tent, temporary. Building, permanent. You go from the temporary, the, the temporal, to the permanent. That's what heaven is. That's what Jesus is trying to explain in John 11. That's why the believer cannot die. It's, an, it's just an exchange. You just take off that which is temporary and you get that which is permanent. It's literally a promotion. The greatest thing about tent camping is packing up, going home. Now, and I I say that kiddingly, I'll do it for my kids. I'll do it, but I, I like my bed. Because it's our home. I, that's why Jesus says that, that he could say to those who, that who believe in him, they don't actually die. It's just a transition to a new permanent residence. There, there is waiting for us a glorious, grand dwelling in a far better neighborhood than what we experience right now. That is, that is what heaven is. And because of that, Paul is saying, and what Jesus is saying, is a Christian should have no fear of death. You may have been, I've been around people in their last moments of death and I'm amazed at how the difference between a believer and a non-believer facing imminent death. I, I'm, not trying to be, I'm not trying to be weird here, but, I, but I, have, I have experienced being at the bedside of people who are dying and in their last moments look up and they start calling out and reaching out for the names of their loved ones who have gone before them as if they're right in front of them. I'm not trying to be weird, and there's a lot of weird movies out there that are going to claim a bunch of lies that I'm not saying to watch. I've seen it with my eyes. Ca- calling, out, calling out the names of their spouse that have already been there. And and to witness it, they—they it was they were literally it was they literally you could tell they were seeing their loved ones who have gone before them. It's a promotion. Death is not a cease of existence for a believer. Death is a transition. Death is simply a move. Karen and I used to live in Carpenter's Run. Now we live in Pine Glen. Guess what? To the people in Carpenter's Run, we no longer exist, but we do exist. We just exist in a new neighborhood. They don't see us anymore. That, that's the way heaven is. I don't cease to exist. I just cease to exist amongst you. I transition to a new neighborhood. And, and because of the resurrection, death is a transition. That's what Jesus was teaching. That's what Paul is explaining. This, listen, the sorrows of life are, life are worse than death. The disappointments of life are worse than death. The depressions of life are worse than death. The things of this world that we experience, that's the real sadness. Look with me real quick at Romans seven twenty four. Paul Paul builds on this. Romans seven twenty four. He says, "Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death?" Groanings. Romans eight twenty three. And not only this, but we also ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Death is the fulfillment of everything that Jesus Christ has promised. We get it. This is not our home. We're not comfortable here. We shouldn't be comfortable here. Paul is fully aware of the frustrations and the the frailties of this life. He says that in verse 2. In verse 3, he says, "...inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we're in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but is clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life." That's what Jesus says, "...I give them eternal life." John 10, 10, "...abundant life." That's what Jesus offers. In the face of death, you know what he offers? Eternal, abundant life. That's an exchange. But it comes through faith. And in the midst of of all of this, we, we ought to welcome death as a reprieve. For a Christian, death is a reprieve. Death is an eternal rest from all of the the the. It's the fulfillment of exactly what he says: "Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for my yoke is easy, burden is light." Rest from all the sin and the stuff that this comes with this body. Look at me. You say, "Well." Well, how did Paul not lose heart? Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 16, a couple verses before chapter 5. Look at what he says. Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. Let me ask you this, on a practical standpoint. Are you, are, is your inner man being renewed every day by the, by the reading of the word, by the studying of the word, by prayer, by all these things? That, that's, that's how you get renewed. Romans 12 talks about renewing your mind through the Word of God, through fellowshipping with, with the Lord. Th- that he had an eternal perspective. Look, look at what he verse 17. For momentary light affliction, only Paul could say that. After what I just read, only Paul could define his, his own as momentary light affliction. I don't think we would call it that. It's producing for us, look, an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. You know what this world ought to do? This world world ought to create in us a hope and an expectation and an eagerness to shed this mortal body and put on the immortal. And Paul says, you know how you don't lose hope? You know how you stick to your your, your confession? By fixing your eyes on what you cannot see rather than on what you can see. And that requires faith. He says that in verse 18, While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Listen, for the things that are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We're temporal. This right here, temporal. The things that are not seen, permanent. Permanent. That's what Paul is saying. Fix your eyes on that. You'll not lose heart. Hebrews 12 talks about that. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising its shame. Fix your eyes on the cross. Fix your eyes on the resurrection. And you don't lose hope. If if all I do is look here, and I'm not renewing my mind with the Word, and that's why we gather to encourage one another, all these things, studying the Bible, my eyes will become very fixed on that which is temporal and forget the eternal. Interesting, in Matthew 13, Jesus said about the the religious leaders of his day, he said, seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear. Why? Because these are eternal truths. These are not worldly things. In 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and following, he says, the natural man doesn't appraise the things of God. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. You need the Spirit to help you do that. To appraise means to assign a value. You don't see the value in it. As Christians, we see the value in it. I see the value in giving up my life here on earth. Why? Because I gain it tenfold for eternity to come. It's an exchange. And I see the value. Last night we played, uh, uh, we sat down and played Monopoly. Bradley Bradley got the game Monopoly. And we played it. And and I don't know whether that's good or bad to teach your kid to play Monopoly. And you're talking about materialism. But... Uh, You know, there's exchanging, and you got to say, do I want to buy this? Do I want to buy, is there value? What you're asking yourself, is there value? Is there value in putting these four little green homes on that that property? Because if someone lands on it, that's bigger rent. You know, you get Park Place and Boardwalk and slap a hotel on there, it's $20 million rent. (laughs) That game went on and on. I was trying, I was begging to go bankrupt at the end of it. What are you doing? I'm trying to bankrupt myself so this game will end. But it's the scene. The, all this stuff is seen. The constant battle from the Christian is, look at verse 7. This is the battle for Christians. For we walk not by, we walk by faith, not by sight. That is the battle. To walk by faith and not by sight. To believe more in what we do not see than what we do see. The things that are not seen are more real than the things even that we see. And next week, my my heart is to look at the evidence surrounding the resurrection. But listen, the most important real realities in this world are things that we don't even see. We don't see them. Though, Though we look at them through faith, and we look at them through the faithful witnesses of those who God has given us, and, guys, we got to realize that, that to face death, com- we can face death confidently because the temporal is replaced with the permanent. The things that are unseen replace the things that are seen, and they're more real than ever. We can face death confidently if we believe that. The question is, do you believe? And, Father, where we do not believe, may you help us to believe. Secondly, we can face death, com- death confidently because it offers the fulfillment of everything that God has promised. Interesting, look at verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 5. Now we, now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. What did God prepare us for? That very purpose. That very purpose. Flip over to Romans 8, 28. Very, very popular verse. A verse that's used out of context a lot. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called, and those whom he called, he justified, and those whom he justified, he glorified. But look, what it says that God causes all things to work together for good. Who? Not to everybody, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. There's a special relationship there. Obviously, God is sovereign. He's carrying all things to His his point, but God's doing something special in our lives. And, And what's the purpose? God makes everything work together for good because He has a purpose. The question becomes, what's the purpose? Look at verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of His Son. What did His Son do? His Son died. God is is taking our lives and using these circumstances and using all this stuff in our lives to do what? To conform us to the image of His Son. To make us more Christ-like. It's not to make us more happy here on this earth necessarily. Happy in Him. But conform to the image of His Son. That's the good. See, and, and God, because He's God, He gets to determine the good. And the good is that His adopted children take on the image of His Son. Even in the midst of our sin, God is working His plan and He is conforming us to the image of His Son. That's the good, that we would be like Christ. And ultimately, when we get to heaven, guess what, guess what we get in heaven? We get a glorified body exactly like Christ. We get our glorified body. That's what we're looking for. And, and, and Christ, he says in verse 29 that Christ was the first fruits born among many brethren. The resurrection of Christ was the first fruits guaranteeing all those who come after Christ, believing in Christ, get what? A resurrected body. Resurrection. That's the purpose. And our purpose requires a resurrection. Why? So that we can get our glorified bodies. And Christ guarantee. listen, to this, Christ's resurrection guarantees our resurrection. That's what he's saying. Christ's resurrection guarantees ours. I I read a quote this week by D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, very famous believer. Um, Schools named after him and all that. Listen to what he said. He said, someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I was born, in, born of the flesh in 1837. I was born of the Spirit in 1855. That which is born of the flesh may die. That which is born of the Spirit will live forever. Do you believe that? See, D.L. Moody lived like he believed that. He gave up this life for that life. And that's where I'm telling you, in my own life, I say, it's easy for me to say I believe that, but practically, do I live like that? See all of the stuff that all of the stuff in the gospels and all over the bible make perfect sense. Die to self, die to self, live for God. Why? Because I'm getting a life greater than that which I'm giving up. I exchange that which is temporal for that which of far greater value. That's but it's faith. But that's the exchange. Even in verse 5 he says the spirit was given as a pledge. That word pledge literally means down payment. It it would be an illustration of that would be like an engagement ring. You give a guy's you one day or have you give a girl an engagement ring and say what? There's another ring coming. There's more coming. The Holy Spirit is given as our pledge. And guess what Jesus says in John 14. We'll see it in coming weeks. I go to prepare a place for you. If we're not so, I told you in my father's house are many rooms. The Holy Spirit is a pledge saying, look, in in those days, a guy would get engaged to a girl. He would go home. He would add a room onto his father's house. Meanwhile, she would prove to be clean and and, uh, beautify herself. And one day, the guy, the groom, with his groomsmen would come back and get his bride. That's a picture of me and you. One day, our bride, our groom, Jesus Christ, is coming back to get us. In the meantime, you know what he said? Be watchful, be faithful, beautify yourself through the Word, through the washing of the Word, so that when I come back, you'll be ready to be wedded. And you see in the Bible, mentions of a wedding feast, heaven being called a wedding feast. In Romans 8, he goes on to say that nothing, not death, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor created. Nothing will be able to separate us from this. It's a done deal. Whatever God starts, He begins. Because He's sovereign. And The Holy Spirit is given as a guarantee that God is going to redeem His own possession and bring them to the praise of His glory. Bottom line, guaranteed promise. The Holy Spirit is a promise, it's a pledge that God is coming back for us. It's coming back. Many of us in here may die prior to that. That's okay too. That, that's why, listen to me, an illustration is that's why it's ludicrous to believe that you can lose your salvation. Absurd to believe that you can lose your salvation. You put all these truths together, plans set in motion in eternity past, given the Spirit as a pledge. I mean, just the very fact that it's called eternal life. God's coming back. And may He find a people whose faith was in the unseen, who believed more in the unseen because they believed in His integrity and His character and His Word more than they were believing and buying in that which is seen. Thirdly, thirdly is this. We can face death confidently because it ushers us into the presence of the Lord. Ushers us into His presence. Look at verses six through nine. Therefore, being always of good courage, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Some I that the, the I, I would I would I think about that verse. When I go on missions trips, and you've been on missions trips, here I cannot wait to get off that plane. I love the mission trip, but I can't wait to get off that plane get on that little shuttle that takes me back to the airport, I can't wait to get off and see Karen and Bradley and Sarah Grace standing, waiting to receive me. Many of you have been that. You've been there. The thing thing that I, I got, I got people waiting on me at my home that I can't wait to get back and see. That's what Paul is saying. Knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. Paul is saying, I can't wait to meet my Savior face to face I cannot wait to be greeted by my savior that that's why we can look forward to death the pain the pressure the affliction all this momentary light affliction that Paul talks about is producing in us eternal weight of glory you know what it's, you know what that means it's saying you can't wait to get home i can't wait to get home that's what Paul is saying that in other words the, the unseen things that Paul looks at to renew his inner man is the immense glory that is to be revealed in him. Romans 8.18 says, I do not consider the present sufferings worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. You hear people say all the time, and I've said in here, when I get to heaven, i got a couple questions to ask God. No, you don't. You won't. When you get to heaven, you're going to be wondering why in the world he even allowed me in. How amazing it is. But it's because of Christ. Interesting, You look at verse, verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done. When I stand before my Savior, nothing that I've done, nothing that I've done would merit interest, entrance. All I have to offer in my flesh is sin, and yet Jesus Christ through great grace has offered me perfect righteousness. In exchange for my sin, righteousness. And I can't wait. Paul couldn't wait to get home. To get rid of this flesh and sin and sickness and sorrow and all this stuff that accompanies a fallen world. He couldn't wait to trade it in. And Paul knew. Paul knew that these were realities. That's why he was willing to put his life on the line for that which was eternal. He knew that 1 Corinthians 15, 51... And following, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye of the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and death will be raised, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will all be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and the mortal must be put on immortality. But when this perishable will have on, put on the imperishable, and the mortal will have put on the immortal, then we will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory." Jesus Christ's resurrection conquered death, defeated. And by placing myself in him through faith, guess what death is swallowed up for me too. He says, oh death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ is abolished. And we listen, we glorify God greatly when we face death confidently. To see a believer face death confidently is a tremendous uh, witness to an unbelieving and dying world around them. To look, at, to look at a believer and say, why? Why would you face death eagerly? Why would you face because it's gain. For them without Christ, it is not gain. They know that. We, we ought to, as believers, have an, a triumphant acceptance of death, not an hysterical panic. And, and I say that again, as always, I know many of your stories. I'm not saying you're grateful that you lost your loved ones. I am saying that you can be grateful for them who knew Jesus Christ. And for you, your death is going to be a reunion. It's interesting, you see it in Genesis when Abraham died. Genesis uh, 25, 8, something like that. It says Abraham was died and was gathered to his people. Many of you have loved ones, Many, I, I do, who have preceded me in death. I'm looking forward to be gathered to my people. I'm looking forward to not only that, all Christians throughout the whole history of the world, guess what? My people, my people, and death for a believer is a reunion beyond your wildest imaginations it's a reunion it's a gathering of your people. When we look at death in the eye and we don 't blink when we look at death as being preferable, that is a testimony that our faith of our faith that will transcend, transcend all of our doctrines all of everything else, to look at death in the eye and say, you're defeated, I win. No matter what. And, and death gives us the single greatest opportunity to prove the reality of our faith. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. Let's be honest. We, we can say a lot of things here, and yet we go back to our homes. Guess what? That's why Paul said, again, I said it in 1 Corinthians fifteen eighteen. if Christ was not raised from the dead, we're to be pitied. Because guess what? He goes on to say later on that, hey, we ought to just eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead. Why? Because you just die. But Christ has been raised from the dead. And, and, And the question becomes, do we believe this? And God is honored when Christians die triumphantly. And the application, as I said, the application, you see it on your handout, just to land this thing real quickly, is the reality of the resurrection of Christ creates in our lives a call to unexplainable courage, even in the face of death. We ought to have a confidence and a courage and an an immovable... That's where Paul says it in, in verse 58 of 1 Corinthians 15. Therefore, my beloved brethren, listen, be steadfast, immovable... Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. No matter what it costs you, no matter what you do, no matter the sweat, blood, and tears, is not in vain in the Lord. Why? Because you will get a reward. You will spend eternity enjoying your risen Savior. And when this grips us, what Jesus says in John 11, that though you may die, you will not die, when that grips us, when we realize that we will put on the imperishable, that death is a fulfillment of what has been Offered to us that it gives us an opportunity to witness, it will give us a courage that the world cannot shake. No matter what the world throws at us, we won't move. Why? Because death is gain. And I, I just ask you to examine yourselves do you share these biblical priorities? Do you value that which is not seen over that which is seen? Do you value the permanent over the temporary? And I pray that we would be a people that are so courageous as as the Father in Mark 9 to say, Lord, I believe, and yet help my unbelief. Lord, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Because we are in this flesh. This body of flesh wages against our spirit. They're at war. Lord, help me, help me to crucify the flesh. And the truth and the reality of the resurrection and what is promised there empowers us to face death with confidence. And and I I pray that every single person here, listen to me, verse 10, we saw it. Every single person when we die, we're going to stand in judgment for our life. And are you going to plead for what you've done? Or are you going to plead what Christ has done? And and I'm telling you, the only way you get heaven, the only way you get heaven is pleading what Christ has done on your behalf. Dying on that cross, being buried, and three days later, raising victoriously, taking the sting out of death, conquering sin and its punishment. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. I pray that every single person in here is believing on Christ. If you want to talk about that, if you're not sure after this service, come down here and we'll talk it's a blessing. If you want to join this church, grab me and we'll talk. Wednesday night, three families came up to me and said they wanted to join the church. I I went home, I could have ran home. And again, I got to sit down with them and chat with them. Maybe it's baptism. A, A family came up last Sunday after the service. Want to be Baptized. Dad, couple kids, whatever it is. What, 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 what's your next step of obedience? For some of us in here, it might be believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of God, He's been drawing you through this message to realize you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe, maybe, it's, maybe it's baptism. Maybe you've put it off too long, no matter, which, no matter how old you are. I mean, maybe it's joining this church. We were meant to be a part of a a bigger body than just ourselves. Whatever it is, after after I pray and we're dismissed, if you want to chat, I'll hang in down here. I'd love to meet with you. But guys, face death with confidence. Trusting in the resurrection. There, There awaits for us a far greater glory than even what your eye can see or your mind can imagine. No eye has seen nor ear has heard the awesomeness of what God has waiting for us. And I pray that that would produce in us a confidence and a, and a courage that the world cannot shake.